Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Again, having completed preaching through the book of Philippians, it has been my intention over these last number of weeks to preach a series of messages entitled, A Call for Men to be Godly. Now again, I hope that all of you have benefited from this because the truths are not just for men, but yet there's been particular application for men and a call for men to be godly. I've preached sermons on sexually pure men, a call for men to be pure, spiritually industrious men, men who are careful how they walk, their lives ordered by the word of God using their time wisely. And then last week, I preached a message entitled Sober Men from Ephesians 5, verse 18, the first part of that verse, Do Not Get Drunk With Wine. And now today, the title of the message is Spirit-Filled Men from the last part of Ephesians 5, verse 18. But as we'll see, even beyond that verse... So if you will follow along as I read Ephesians 5, verses 15 to 21, and we'll focus our attention on verses 18 to 21, but we'll read the context a little more here. Ephesians 5, beginning verse 15, therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to God or to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Ephesians 5.18, but do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Last week we saw that drunkenness is a dangerous and destructive sin, which is contrary to the gospel And it's contrary to our new life in Christ. And I applied it particularly to men, that we who are men are to be characterized by moderation, temperance, and self-control. To live the Christian life, to grow in sanctification, we must be clear-headed, sensible, and of sound judgment. Drunkenness prevents this from happening. Therefore, our lives are not to be under the influence of wine, alcohol, or any such thing. Instead, the contrast is this. We're to live under the influence of, you might say, under the control of, by, through, and under the power of the Holy Spirit. How can we be sexually pure? How can we be spiritually industrious and careful how we walk so that we walk in accordance with the revealed will of God, bringing glory to Him? 
How can we redeem the time when the days are so evil? And we're tempted by the world and an adversary, the devil, and we have still remaining corruption within our own hearts. How can we do this? It's not by might. It's not by our power, but it's by the Holy Spirit who indwells us. We must, we must be filled with the the Spirit of God. We must be Spirit-filled Christians. Men, we must be Spirit-filled men. Now, we will consider what it means to be filled with the Spirit more specifically in a minute. And we'll see some of the characteristics of it. But for now, consider how important the Holy Spirit is in the life of the believer. Throughout the pages of the Bible, we see how important the second person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, is to the church and to the believer. So without turning to the passages, I'm going to read to you a number of passages. Just consider how necessary the Holy Spirit is to the church and the believer. First, in salvation, the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts of sin. For He convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And it was the Holy Spirit using the Word of God that convinced you of your sin, convicted you of the guilt of sin, that you might seek a Savior. We were born again and regenerated by the Spirit of God. Jesus said in John 3 verse 5, I say to you, unless one is born of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Titus 3 verse 5, God saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing and regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 6.33, it is the Spirit who gives life. And so as those who have been born again by the Spirit and had our eyes opened to our sin but a glorious Savior and have been drawn sweetly to faith in Christ, we now have the indwelling Spirit. He dwells in us. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? And Romans 8 verse 9 says, If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. We have the indwelling Spirit. Ezekiel 36 verse 27 says, I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. The indwelling Spirit and all of what that means is precious to the believer. But the Spirit not only indwells the believer, but the Spirit indwells the church. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, Do you not know that you, plural, is the you there, you are collectively, plural, the body of Christ, you are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you. So we are like a temple, and we are stones that make up that temple, and the Spirit of God dwells in His church, manifesting the glory of God among His people. The believer has been baptized with the Spirit. John the Baptist, 
the forerunner to Jesus, said, when he comes, he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. When you were baptized in water, you were baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. As Jesus said, we're to make disciples. And part of that, when someone hears and believes the gospel, then they are baptized in the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gives the church and believers the power to be witnesses for Christ. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, and ultimately it would be to the ends of the earth until the end of the age. It is by the Holy Spirit that we are able to guard the gospel and protect it. As Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 verse 14, Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. The Bible says in Acts 20, 28, that the Holy Spirit sets apart men as shepherds of the flock. And so when Paul addresses the church or the the elders at Ephesus, he says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The Holy Spirit produces love for God in the heart of the believer. Romans 5 verse 5 says, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. By definition, the believer is one who has a mindset on the Spirit and who is led by the Spirit. Romans 8 verse 6, the mindset on the flesh is death. But the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Romans 8, 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. We are to put to death the deeds of the flesh. How? By the Spirit. Romans 8 verse 13 says. The Spirit is also involved in assuring us of our salvation, testifying with our spirit that we are children of God. Romans 8 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And the Holy Spirit also helps our weaknesses and intercedes for us. Romans 8 Verses 26 and 27, the Spirit helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he, the Spirit, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. It is the Holy Spirit who distribute spiritual gifts to believers that they might be used to build up the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one gifts individually, just as He wills, just as the sovereign Spirit wills. The Holy Spirit produces the fruit of the Spirit in the life of the believer. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 And that fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Christians are called to worship God 
in the Spirit of God or by the Spirit of God, it says in Philippians 3, verse 3. And we are sealed by the Holy Spirit who is given to us as a pledge and guarantee of our future and final redemption, according to Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In Him, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him, how? With the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. We are strengthened in the inner man by the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul prays in Ephesians 3.16 that that God would grant those believers according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power. How? Through His Holy Spirit in the inner man. We're commanded not to quench the Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, or greed the Spirit, Ephesians 4, verse 30, but instead to sow to the Spirit, Galatians 6, verse 8, pray in the Spirit, Ephesians 6, verse 18, and walk in the Spirit, Galatians 5, verse 16. And now here in Ephesians 5.18, we are to be filled with the Spirit. Is it not obvious how important the Holy Spirit is to the church and to the believer? We are dependent upon God the Holy Spirit to live the Christian life. Jesus said, as recorded in John 15 verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Just as apart from Christ, we can do nothing. It is also true that apart from the Holy Spirit, who was sent by the ascended Savior and who abides in us, apart from the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We cannot live in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. We cannot live in accordance with the gospel and the implications of the gospel. We cannot, apart from the work of the Spirit, please God. In the book of Ephesians, in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul employs the church to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which they have been called. He calls them in Ephesians 4.17 not to walk as they once did as Gentiles lost in their sin, but to walk in love, Ephesians 5 verse 2. To walk as children of light, chapter 5 verse 8. To be careful how they walk, as I just read in verse 15 of chapter 5. To not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is. To not get drunk with wine. To not live lives of dissipation. How? (laughs) How do we walk in that way? We must be filled with the Spirit. Our walk and how we live is inextricably bound to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. For we cannot walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Walk in the light. Walk in love. Walk wisely. Men, be sexually pure. And walk in a manner that's in accordance with the will of God as revealed in the scriptures. We can't be sober men and sober-minded men unless we're filled with the Spirit. 
We are completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God. But what does that mean? And what does being filled with the Spirit look like? Well, let's consider that this morning with this outline. Two points in the main headings of the outline that will just direct us as we go through these verses. Simply this, first the prescription and then the description. The prescription to be filled with the Spirit and then the description of what it means and looks like to be filled with the Spirit. Now when I say the prescription... One of the meanings of the word prescription is this, the action of laying down authoritative rules and directions. The Apostle Paul is giving an authoritative prescription, a command, be filled with the Spirit, and that's found in verse 18. But then he gives a description of what that looks like in verses 19 to 21. Grammatically, it looks like this. Do not do this, verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But do this. Be filled with the Spirit. So those are two commands. Remember, two imperatives. Grammatically, the first is a negative injunction, a prohibition. Do not do this. Do not get drunk with wine. But it doesn't stop there. Then there's a positive injunction, a positive command to do something. Namely, but be filled with the Spirit. So that's the prescription. But then you say, well, where's the description of being filled with the Spirit? Well, it's found grammatically in the Greek language in which this was originally written in what we call participles. And there are five of them in verses 19 to 21. Speaking, verse 19. Singing, Verse 19, making melody, verse 19, giving thanks, verse 20. And then although most of your translations don't have it in uh, participial form, it should be, I think, to understood, be understood grammatically, translated submitting. So speaking, singing, making melody, giving thanks, and submitting. Now, they go together, and they're somewhat distinct at the same time. But those five participles, those five words, give us a description of what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. These are things that accompany one who is filled with the Spirit. Speaking, singing, making melody, giving thanks, and submitting. And then you have to understand what the verse says about Speaking what and to whom and singing what and to whom. Making melody, how, from where (laughs) and to whom and submitting to whom. But in the context, this is a description of what being filled with the Spirit looks like. Now, that's not all that characterizes being filled with the Holy Spirit. The rest of the chapter describes a Spirit-filled life too. And certainly there are other places in Scripture that would tell us this is a characteristic of a Spirit-filled life. But in the immediate context here of Ephesians 5, here is how it's described. And thus we know 
what at least some of the characteristics are in our lives in relationship to the church, the body of Christ, and to God, as described in verses 19 to 21, to be filled with the Spirit. So there's the prescription, the command, and then the description of what that looks like. So let's begin with the prescription. Again, this authoritative directive, a command. Be filled with the Spirit. Let me just make some general observations. And let me give you some hermeneutical principles, how you interpret Scripture. Because part of what the exposition of the Word of God, the preaching of the Word of God should do is help us to understand how to rightly divide the Word, how to study the Scriptures... And so first we note that this is a command. It is a command to be obeyed. Be filled with the Spirit. Now, some of the Holy Spirit's work and ministry to us and in us and in the church is completely apart from anything that we are to do. For example, we're not commanded, be sealed with the Spirit. No, we are as believers, sealed with the Holy Spirit. We're not commanded to be indwelled by the Spirit. We are indwelled by the Spirit. It's not something we do to obtain that ministry and work of the Holy Spirit. These are realities that are completely apart from anything we're to do. There's no command, be sealed in the Spirit. There's no command, be indwelt by the Spirit. Again, these are realities that we do not bring about by any purposeful action on our behalf. However, here in Ephesians 5.18, we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. And this command found in verse 18 is the centerpiece of the passage I just read. In many ways, it's the focal point of, of this part of Ephesians chapter Chapters 4 to 6. And the rest of the book of Ephesians describe what a spirit-filled church and spirit-filled believer looks like. Now, this command to be filled with the Holy Spirit does not mean that you do not have the Holy Spirit and you need to pray for Him. As I already read in Romans 8 verse 9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. It doesn't say pray for the Spirit because you don't have Him. It is a command to be filled with the Spirit who already indwells you, believer, and who already indwells the church. So then what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, filled with means to be dominated by, to be under the control of, we might say. And to get aid in understanding what it means to be filled with the Spirit, we need to look at the immediate context. Not just the grammar, but the immediate context. This command to be filled with the Spirit is in juxtaposition to being drunk with wine. Therefore, there is here a comparison between being drunk with wine, but also there's some contrasts between being drunk with wine and filled with the Spirit. Now, when I say comparison and contrast, those of you young people in high school doing literature, writing, those of us who are adults, maybe we need a refresher. What's the difference between a comparison and a contrast? Well, when we compare something, we're identifying similarities between two things. 
when we contrast something or two things, we're identifying dissimilarities. A comparison is how two things are alike, and a contrast is how two things are different. So this goes back to what I preached on last week. In the first part of verse 18, the immediate context. Do not get drunk with wine. But, now it says be filled with the Spirit. How are the two alike if we were to compare them? Well, when we are intoxicated, we are controlled by the substance. That which fills us, wine, for example, begins to affect us and have its way with us. Our faculties are affected by the wine, the alcohol, the drug, or whatever it may be. When we are filled with the Spirit, we are affected by the Holy Spirit of God and controlled by the Spirit of God. When we are drunk with wine, we are under its influence. When we are filled with the Spirit, we are under His influence. So in that sense, there's a comparison. It means to be, it's the idea that don't be controlled by and under the influence of that which will lead to dissipation and ungodliness. Instead, be influenced by and under the control of the Spirit of God. Here, described as being filled with the Spirit. But the comparison ends there. From there... The two are in contrast to each other, being drunk with wine and being filled with the Spirit. They're different in their effects. One is sin, the other is holy. When a person is drunk, he doesn't have control over his faculties. When a person is filled with the Spirit, he's marked by self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit. One is dissipation, which is marked by reckless immoral behavior. The other is marked by careful and godly behavior described in verses 15 to 17. One is marked by losing control. The other is marked by self-control. One is characterized by a lack of sound judgment. You remember from last week. The other is marked being filled with the Spirit by being clear-headed, having godly discernment. Again, one leads to dissipation. The other leads to godliness and sanctification. When we are filled with the Spirit, we're characterized by all that is holy, for He is the Holy Spirit. So the context tells us something of how they're compared and helps us understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit, but then the contrast between the two. But then we also, to understand it, we need to understand the word, filled with. We need to do a word study. What does that mean? Well, consider how the word filled is used in other passages. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus heals a paralytic. And after he does so, in Luke 5 verse 26, it says this, They, those who saw it, were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were, here's the word, filled with fear. And the word fear here means with awe, saying, we have seen remarkable things today. So having seen this miracle that Jesus performed, they were filled with awe. They were affected by the awe and they were overwhelmed by, we've seen remarkable things. And they leave there struck by awe and the fear and reverence for God in some sense. 
So they are affected by it. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. And the religious leaders thought he had broken Sabbath laws. And so it says in Luke 6, 11, but they themselves were filled. There's the word. What were they filled with? Not the spirit, not with awe. It says they were filled with rage and discuss together how they, what they might do to Jesus. They begin talking about how are we going to get rid of this man because they're so sinfully angry with him. Rage which filled them began to control them and rule them. One more example in John 16 verse 6. Jesus teaches his disciples that he must go away from them to heaven. And as he's telling them that he's going to leave them, but he's going to send the Spirit of God, by the way, but when he's telling them he's going to leave them, it says in John 16, verse 6, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has, here's the word, filled your heart. They heard Jesus is leaving us. So sorrow, which filled their hearts, began to control them, their thoughts, their emotions, their actions. So from this, we begin to understand, we use that word in that way. When we are filled with something, it begins to control us, affect us, and direct us in some way. When we are filled with the Spirit, then we are affected by the Spirit in the ways in which the Holy Spirit affects us. We're dependent upon the Spirit and we are controlled by the Holy Spirit. This is not an emotion. What I mean is this, is not some emotional experience or something you feel. Now there's no question that being filled with the Spirit will produce godly affections. But you don't determine whether or not you're filled by the Spirit as to whether or not you have some sort of emotional, ecstatic, frenzied experience. That's how some people define it. So you have all kinds of things, even the foolishness of people saying they're drunk in the spirit and abusing this particular verse to say, oh, don't get drunk with wine, but be drunk with the spirit. And you've probably seen it where they say, oh, this, there's some circle. I don't know if you've seen it before. And they say, oh, when I go into this particular area around the pulpit, I get drunk with the spirit. And as soon as someone walks in it, they start acting, stammering around and acting foolish. They say, I'm drunk in the spirit. Now that is not what this is speaking of. So the context in the comparison, but mostly contrast with drunk with wine, explains what it means to be filled with the Spirit. A word study of the word filled helps us understand it. But again, the grammar helps us as well here. Be filled with the Spirit. It's not just a command, but it's what we call a present imperative. It's the present tense. So it's this idea. Keep being filled with the Spirit. It's not a one-time thing. Oh, I've been filled with the Spirit. That happened to me such and such a year. No, the grammar here is keep being filled with the Spirit. Have a moment-by-moment dependence upon the Spirit of God. The Christian is always to be filled with the Spirit. You were sealed with the Spirit once. (laughs) You were indwelled by the Spirit. You received the Spirit. That happened 
and he does not depart. You'll never stop being indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. However, you can have the Spirit indwelling you and yet not be filled with the Spirit. As it means here in Ephesians 5.18. You can have the Spirit, and if you're a Christian, you do, and yet not be filled with the Spirit, for this is a command to be continually filled with the Spirit. And one reason why it's important to understand that is some teach that being filled with the Spirit and having the Spirit indwelling you is the same thing. But indwelling and filling are not the same thing. All believers have the Spirit at conversion, but the language be filled with the Spirit is a reference to being controlled by, dependent upon the Spirit of God. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, as you know, was a preacher in England. Before he was a preacher, he was a physician. So in his sermons on Ephesians 5.18, he writes as both a physician and a pastor. And he says it this way. Wine, alcohol, pharmacologically speaking, is not a stimulant. It's a depressant. Take up any book on pharmacology and look up alcohol and you will find always that it is classified among the depressants. It's not a stimulant. Further, he writes, it depresses first and foremost the highest centers of all in, or in the brain. And he says they, that is depressants, control everything that gives a man self-control, wisdom, understanding, discrimination, judgment, balance, the power to assess everything. In other words, everything that makes a man behave at his very best and highest. That's what depressants do, of which wine, alcohol, is one. However, the Holy Spirit does the exact opposite. And so, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, if it were possible to put the Holy Spirit into a textbook of pharmacology... I would put him under the stimulants, for that is where he belongs. He really does stimulate. He stimulates our every faculty, the mind and the intellect and the heart and the will. Unto what? Holiness. The Spirit of God stimulates us in the things that are godly and holy. And we must always then be filled with and under the control of the Holy Spirit unto holiness. And so it's our responsibility to be in dependence upon, humbly looking to, controlled by, under the power and authority and direction of the Holy Spirit. This is a conscious choice we must make. Be filled with the Spirit. That's the prescription. Now, consider the description then. You know, in pharmacology, here's the drug, here's the prescription. What is it for? Okay, how is it described and what are the side effects, you might say? How is it used in a positive way? Consider the description of being filled with the Spirit. 
Now, in doing so, we have to understand the previous context. We've already talked about that, the the preceding context. Be sober-minded, be clear-headed. We need to be of sound judgment. God has called us to orderly lives that are directed by by the Word of God and and knowing and understanding the will of God as revealed in Scripture. And and don't be drunk with wine, because that would be the opposite of that. But then when we say, well, how do we describe what being filled with the Spirit looks like, one of the ways you do that is by the subsequent context. But before we get there, let me take you to a parallel passage that will help describe it. So where's that parallel passage? Does anybody know? You have permission to speak. Colossians chapter 3. So turn to Colossians chapter 3. This is critically important to understand. Again, this is how you study the Word of God to understand what God is saying, what it means to be filled with the Spirit. There's a parallel passage, and that is Colossians chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul is saying the same things in that letter, but sometimes in slightly different words that help us understand more clearly what the other letter means. So Colossians chapter 3 is a parallel passage. Look at verse 16. And as I read this, notice words that are similar or even the same as what I read in Ephesians 5, verses 19 and following. Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now that sounds like... Ephesians 5, 19 and 20, doesn't it? But where's the be filled with the Spirit? Well, those exact words aren't used, but the parallel to being filled with the Spirit, Paul describes it here in Colossians 3.16 of, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Be filled with the Spirit. And here's the results. And here's how it's described and what will happen and characterize a person filled with the Spirit. You'll with all wisdom teach and admonish one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, and sing with thankfulness in your heart to God. The the difference is in Ephesians 5.18, it's described this way, be filled with the Spirit. Here it's let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. And it brings the same results because it's really a description of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. You're filled with the Spirit... By letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And here we see the relationship between the spirit and the word. Through the the years I've been at Grace, I've said it so many times. Let me just say it again. In so many different contexts, I've said this. Let this stick with you. You can never separate the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Word of God. Don't ever separate the Holy Spirit from the Word of God. When you do, you're always in danger. For the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is inextricably tied to the Word of God. There's a whole sermon I preached on this one time that traces the relationship of the Spirit to the Word. He inspired the Word. 
He is the one who illumines our minds with the word. We're, we're made alive in Christ, born again, not, not apart from the word, but hearing the word. And then you think about how, what the word does. It instructs and convicts and reproves and it corrects and trains in righteousness. That's what the spirit of God does. He uses the word to do that. Here you see an example of that. The Apostle Paul, born along by the Spirit of God, the pen sacred scripture, describes it this way. Be filled with the Spirit. And here are the, the results. And here's what it looks like. Here's characteristics and descriptions of that. And then in Colossians 3.16, he just uses another phrase. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. You cannot separate the Spirit from the Word without there being danger. So here in Colossians 3.16, it says you're to let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let it dwell. Let it take up residence. Let it be at home in you. Now again, in one sense, the Word of God does dwell within us. The new covenant is, I will put my laws into your hearts and your minds. I will write them upon your heart. 1 John 2.14, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. There's a sense in which, that's again, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The word of God abides in us. It is written upon our hearts and minds in a way in regeneration that wasn't present, although the law was written in some sense in the conscience prior to regeneration and salvation, but now it's written in the new covenant as we believe in a unique way. But now we need to let it richly dwell. It's there, but now we need to be directed and molded and shaped by it. We need to put it into practice. The Holy Spirit indwells the believer, but be filled with the Spirit and controlled by the Spirit of God. Submit unto the Holy Spirit of God. How? By letting the Word of God richly take up residence in you so that now you're delighting in it and you're under the control of Ephesians 5, 17. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Where is that found? In the sacred scriptures. Let it richly dwell within you. Let it abundantly dwell within you. Let it saturate your life. Let the word about Christ, the gospel, and all the implications as revealed in Scripture, let it permeate your life, pervade your life. Every decision, the word of Christ should pervade it. Every difficult trial and situation, let the word of Christ pervade it. Every difficult relationship, every temptation, the word of Christ must richly dwell within you. And you must be under its authority and power. That's parallel to let be filled with the spirit. So this is how we're filled with the Spirit. We're we're filled with the Word that the Holy Spirit inspired, and it richly dwells within us. For it is what? The sword of the Spirit. Ephesians 6, verse 17. So be filled with the Spirit. That is, be controlled by, dependent upon the Spirit of God who inspired the written Word of God and let it richly dwell within you. You see the parallel cell, how important that is 
to compare Scripture with Scripture and understand how Paul, born along by the Spirit, pins Colossians and writes it in that way. The two are tied together. But going back to Ephesians 5, let me show you how it's described in that context. What then this filling of the Spirit begins to look like. You say, how do I know I'm filled with the Spirit? Here's some of the things you'll see. When the Spirit of God is at work and we are submitting unto the Spirit of God through the written Word of God, here are the things it produces. Five participles. Verses 19 to 21. Speaking, singing, making melody, giving thanks, and being subject. Now, let me just briefly explain this. Notice here, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody with your heart, so you're using your lips, you're speaking, you're making melody in your heart, a heart and lips not undivided, but both used for the building up of the body and praising God, giving thanks, not only in the heart, but with the lips for all things. In the name of our Lord Jesus to God, even the Father, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Notice the vertical and the horizontal here. And it just, it's interchangeable, not interchangeable, but it it goes from one to the other very quickly. You speak to one another, you make melody in your heart to the Lord. You give thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus to God, and you're being subject to one another. You see the vertical and the horizontal, not separated but joined together, Godward and manward. When you're filled with the Spirit, the Spirit of God affects relationships. Our relationship to God and always then our relationships to one another. Let me just apply that for a minute. You can't live in isolation in fellowship to God apart from being in relationship with the people of God. You can't be in right relationship in your walk with God as a believer unless you are being in right relationship in your walk with the people of God. So I'm filled with the Spirit of God. I'm singing to Him and I'm I'm making melody in my heart to the Lord and giving thanks to Him, but then you're not at peace with the people of God. The Spirit of God cannot be divided like that. The fruit of being filled with the Spirit is vertical, Godward, but also horizontal, manward. So you notice that the Spirit, when we're filled with the Spirit, affects relationships to God and others in the body. And therefore, being filled with the Spirit affects and has to do with our relationship and walk to God, but also our fellowship with the people of God. Notice that it affects our tongues. We're speaking. We're singing. We're giving thanks. And it affects our hearts, our inner lives, so to speak, our spiritual lives, our desires, our affections, so that we're singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. Now you see why I pointed out those two hymns. We praise Him with heart and with voice. Our tongues praising God. But also in our hearts, godly affections toward God. 
So we see that this description of being filled with the Spirit in verses 19 to 21 is comprehensive. It affects the whole person and affects the whole of one's life in relationship to God and to others. Love God. Love your neighbor. And let me just point out the corporate nature of this passage. I want to point this out because often we think spirituality and godliness is private. We tend to think that in terms of our personal walk with God, apart from our relationship to the whole body of Christ, And we sometimes make decisions we say are led by the Spirit for personal reasons without the whole body in mind. That's not walking in the Spirit. That's not being filled with the Spirit. Do not think that you're filled with the Spirit if you are a freelance Christian or, as I've read before, a free agent Christian. It's not filled with the Spirit of God. For when you're filled with the Spirit of God, you will naturally want to be with the people of God to praise Him and worship Him and fellowship with those people who also have been redeemed by God and indwelled by the Spirit. So in light of that, verses 19 to 21 tells us what it looks like. It's described in this way, and I don't have time to get into the details of this, but but I could describe it this way. When we're filled with the Spirit, there'll be edifying fellowship, joyful worship, comprehensive thankfulness, and godly and humble relationships. Now, there's a lot there to just consider, isn't there? Edifying fellowship. Now, what do we think? Having a meal together? No, that's not how he describes it here, although that might be a part of it. The edifying fellowship, as I've often said to you, is when we come together. That's why I had to sing it today. Come, Christians, join to sing. Hallelujah. Amen. That's fellowship. When you speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, you're not just singing, you're speaking truth to one another. Our hymns, our songs of praise are directed to God, but often they're directed to one another. A mighty fortress is our God. We're not telling God that. He knows that. He's told us that. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. What does that do to the heart of the believer? Can you imagine when Luther penned those words? You understand what he was going through. And when he, as R.C. Sproul used to say, as he would describe when there were times of discouragement in Martin Luther's life, as he describes, he would say to his comrades, let's sing the 46th. Well, that's being filled with the Spirit. People of God, let's be reminded. Let's speak to one another. The Spirit and the gifts are ours. No thanks to them. No thanks to these powers of this world These things abide what the Spirit is doing. I'm summarizing a mighty fortress. His kingdom is forever. I need you to tell me that. I need to hear you tell me that. You say, oh, you're you're a pastor. You don't need that. Here's a phrase. Pastors are people too. You've seen the commercials. I accidentally did an advertisement last week. (laughs) 
So let me refer to another one. Where's car commercial? And there's this little caption that says, real people, not actors. Maybe you've seen that before. It's humorous. You say, of course they're real people. And they, what they mean is, we didn't bring these people in to act, although I doubt that's the case. They gave them instruction. But they're real people, not actors. Listen, your pastors are real people, not actors. If we're actors, we're hypocrites. We're real people who need to hear you speak to us those truths. And you need to hear us speak those truths. And we need to hear one another. You need to hear the person behind you and beside you. Sometimes husbands and wives, you need to sit together and join in saying those things because you just had an argument on the way to church. And now you need to be reminded of truths that will change your heart to make it right. There's all kinds of other means. This is what Ephesians says. That's why we come to the table of the Lord. We come as one people. We share together. It should be instructive. You're a part of a body. But here, Paul is saying, edifying fellowship is not, hey, we just have some common interests and we're going to have a meal together. No, we're speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. So we're fellowshipping when we do that. And we do it out loud. It's one of the reasons why it is not our goal to see if we can have certain talented people just lead us in worship. I'm not saying by that that it's wrong to have people standing, playing instruments, because I don't believe that. Be I think you can, and it would be permissible. And I'm just saying, but... The tenor of the day, the direction of the day, is to come and be non-participatory and be entertained. There are times I need that, by the way. There are times I just need to be still and I need someone to tell me things. I'm having a hard time seeing it. But we're commanded in Scripture, we need to speak to one another. And that's why I love what God has commanded, that we come together And as spirit-filled Christians, we speak to one another in these psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And at the same time, we're singing and making melody in our heart to God. See how they're wed together? There's this joyful worship. Joyful worship. Shout joyfully to the Lord. Come, And join me in making melody, singing. That means the producing of musical sounds with the voice. But then making melody is psalmo in the Greek, which is the idea of striking the strings. Again, not necessary for worship, but when there's the ability to have the accompanying of our voices with instruments... They join together, and the heart is joined. This is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. This is what it looks like. This is a description of it. This is why when someone says, I don't really value that or need that or want that, something's wrong. I don't like to sing. You do if you're filled with the Spirit. Unless God has providentially removed your voice, 
then you're to use it to speak and to sing. The most important instrument, let me just say this to you. (laughs) The most important instrument in the public worship of God, let me have you fill in the blank, is what? The voice. It's not the piano or any other instrument. It's your voice. From the heart. God's not calling you to sing a solo. He's calling you to speak to one another. To joyfully sing with one another. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt His name together. And then there's comprehensive thankfulness. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus to God, even the Father. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. In everything give thanks. This is a description of someone who's spirit-filled. That he's a thankful heart and he expresses it with his tongue. Again, I can't get into all the detail with this, but then there is this submitting to one another. In verse 21, godly relationships. Yeah, we're speaking to one another, and as we speak to one another, and we encourage one another, and as our fellowship goes beyond that to then encouraging personally one another as we speak the truth to one another, what do we do? We receive it humbly. We submit to one another. We do so in the fear of Christ. So, again, just meditate and dwell on that. That's what being filled with the Spirit looks like according to this immediate context here. And comparing that with Colossians 3.16, it's related to the Word taking up residence in us, delighting in the Word, loving the Word, obeying the Word, and then in relationship to others and to God, we together are living in right fellowship with one another. We're being subject and submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. What a beautiful picture of the work of the Spirit of God in the church. Let me give brief application to you men. Men, we need the Holy Spirit in order to be godly. What God has called us to be in our hearts, in our lives, in relationship to God, in the home, in the church, in the workplace, and in the world must purposely be under the control of the Holy Spirit and living under the authority of the Word of God. Be spirit-filled men. See, there's a reason for the progression that I've been taking in these series of messages. Be sexually pure, spiritually industrious, sober men. You can't do it, man, on your own. You need the Spirit of God. The Christian life is not lived out by power of man and by our ingenuity. Men, you must be spirit-filled men. So that means, men, to be spirit-filled, you must be men of the Word. The Word of Christ must richly dwell within you. Your life must be permeated with the Word of God. You have to hear it and read it and study it and memorize it and meditate upon it. You must be 
filled with the Word. This isn't something that's subjective where you're waiting on the Lord to give you a word. No, it means you're actively pursuing to know. Ephesians 5.17, remember? Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And He's given it to you, so you're men of the word. So you need the Spirit. You have to be a man of the word. Men, to be filled with the Spirit, you must be in right relationship, not only with God through Christ, but with the people of God, the church. Godly men are church men. And then godly men are worshiping men. Who don't bow before the world, but bow before the true and living God through faith in Christ. And godly men are men who make melody in their heart to God, who sing, who speak. They worship So men, are you spirit-filled? Are you Bible men? Are you church men? Are you worshiping men at the throne of God? And this is what God calls us to be. For apart from His Spirit, we cannot be what God has called us to be as men. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the clarity it gives. For indeed, the Word as the Spirit uses it in our hearts, brings spiritual sobriety and soberness of mind and heart. Holy Spirit, I pray, may these truths permeate and saturate our minds, our affections, our actions. May we yield ourselves to You and be filled with you, the Spirit who indwells us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.